Hey, I'm Gabriel. And I'm Alex. And this is episode four. <laughs> episode four of Life on the Brink. And we're doing green turtles. Or, scientifically, Chelonia Midas. According to the Greeks, Chelonia is derived from tortoise and Midas from wetness. So Chelonia Midas, green sea turtle, is tortoise wetness. Beautiful. So, I love it. Poetic. Wet turtles. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> They're listed as endangered and have a population that we don't have an estimate for but it's definitely decreasing. They live pretty much all the way around the middle third or so of the planet. And so our guest today specializes in researching and managing the effects of temperature on green turtle nests. In sea turtles, the temperature of the nest changes how many of the babies turn out to be female and how many turn out to be male. And as climate change warms their nesting beaches, males are going to become more rare. In this episode, our guest explains the work she's done trying to cool the nest down using watering cans and describes a magical moment that wouldn't sound out of place in a Disney movie. She's a sea turtle researcher, ocean advocate, and self-proclaimed turtle creep. This is episode four of Life on the Brink, featuring the green sea turtle and Melissa Staines. There's one swear in this episode that we couldn't bring ourselves to cut out. It's 28 minutes in if you want to give it a miss. Uh, I guess starting off, how did you uh, how did you get into sort of conservation work and sea turtles? Like what kicked it off? So I, when I was 16, I decided I wanted to be a marine biologist. And that was because I had a big influence from my dad, who's a fisheries officer. And my godfather, who does marine surveying in the Antarctic division. So (laughs) he has a pretty sick job. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, he's won medals and stuff like that for his achievements. And that was just totally inspiring for me. I was really excited to, uh, yeah, be a marine biologist and get into um, marine conservation. And Anyway, I decided I wanted to go get my scuba diving certificate because obviously marine biologists have to know how to scuba dive, right? And I got my open water certificate. I unfortunately had a big like sinus problem and I actually burst my sinus at 20 meters and my mask filled up with blood, which was terrifying as a 16 year old. (laughs) So I've never really been able to dive like deeper than uh, eight meters. Um, So kind of like restricted my ability. I still went on to go obviously go to university, uh, but I always knew that I probably was never going to be able to be the big scuba diver, like coral marine biologist type person or dive with manta rays and, you know, do the ID stuff, which is, I loved manta rays when I was, that was what I thought my, my animal was. Um, I, I, I love the idea that you at 16 were like, I want to be a marine biologist got to 20 meters had that event where the mask filled up with blood and that's yeah. not the turnoff point that's like oh, yeah. i just have to find a different thing to do yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was there ever a consideration of like well maybe i should stick to the land no <laughs> um i wait for sea animals to come out of the ocean for me um yeah so i burst my sinus at 20 meters and I already had tooth pain on the way down, which is a pretty clear sign that you have um, air bubbles trapped in your sinuses. Mm -hmm. And um, 
yeah, ignored those signs and kept going. And then it wasn't until we started like ascending again that I felt the need to sneeze and I sneezed. And when I'm 16 and I see blood in my mask, the first reaction was I've blown my brain out of my head. Mm. Like I have no brain. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, that was terrifying. I was also diving with my friend, Nikki, um, shout out Nikki, (laughs) who didn't really like the gray nurse sharks that we were snorkeling with, or sorry, diving with. And so when the blood went into the water, she like felt so nauseous from the fact that there's sharks and blood in the water that she spewed through her regulator. And then the sharks are just fully swimming on top of us with the blood and the, and the vomit like in the water. And then I'm like thinking that I'm dying. It was just an entire time. Like, holy crap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was pretty Wait, nice. Wait, so did, when you, when you sneeze in the mask, did it like block up your goggles at all? Oh uh, yeah, I couldn't see. Yeah, it was all full of blood. And then um, the instructor came over and kind of like tugged on my mask to tell me to flush it out. Mm-hmm. So I did that. You know, I just did my certification, so I know how to do that. <laughs> so I did that. And then he said, um, "We're going to do an emergency ascent because he didn't know how bad the situation was." Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah, I've done my certificate, so I know I knew how to do an emergency ascent. Did that perfectly. Um, waited at the five meter mark and then swam the rest of the way up. So we don't get the bends. Um, Hey, so just cutting in here for those who aren't familiar with what the bends are. It's also known as decompression sickness, and it's a medical condition when nitrogen absorbed into the blood at depth forms bubbles in body tissues or the bloodstream. And it's caused when a diver ascends too quickly because they've been breathing in the oxygen from their tank when it's compressed down at a depth. And as they ascend up through the water, Uh, it expands in their body where you don't want it expanding. And my dumb ass will never forget what the bends are because one of the first times that I went scuba diving, I ascended way too quickly and it resulted in the dive master losing his crap at me. (laughs) Super justified. Naughty. (laughs) Back to it. And then when I got to the surface, my nose wasn't bleeding anymore and I really wanted to keep diving, so I actually never told mum. <laughs> I was 16 and I was like, she's never going to let me dive again. I'm not telling her. And then it wasn't until I was like 19 that I decided, okay, like I, I'm going to university to do marine biology. I have to see if I can actually get this fixed. Mm. And so I can go and get sinoplasty to get it fixed. I have chronic sinusitis from it. So basically like that um, event basically like broke like micro bones in my sinuses and mm-hmm. has semi blocked it. Um, so I always sound super nasally before I was 16. I never sounded, my voice didn't sound like this, <laughs> which is super weird to have your voice change as a girl yeah. <laughs> when you're 16. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. That's wild. So have you done any scuba stuff since? No, nah, it's been nearly 10 years, which is yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah. So you said there's some procedure where you can get a fixture of it. Do you ever reckon you'll do that? Yeah, I definitely want to because I think I still feel like I'm missing out. Like even if I got it just so that I could free dive, like even mm. when I first show up at a, at a dive site to go free diving and I can only go, like I said, to eight meters. So I don't even know if that's considered free diving. But um, whenever I show up to the dive site, normally like the boat scares off all the big animals. So you're mm. swimming around looking at all the, you know, the cute smaller stuff, which is fine. But then it takes about like half an hour for the big animals to like come back. And at that point, like I've been having chronic sinusitis, your sinuses fill up with salty water and it makes you really like congested. And the more congested that I feel, the less I can dive down because I get that tooth squeeze pain. 
So it sucks because when then when the big animals come back, I just can't hang at the bottom with them at all. So ideally, I would just even get the surgery just to be able to do that. Mm, yeah, super yeah. fair. That's uh, that's unfortunate. You want to be in the water so bad, and your yeah. body's just like, nah. <laughs> uh, that's why I make the t- a turtles can come out for me. Yeah, <laughs> the perfect perfect study animal. Um, well, I was going to yeah. say, I, we'd love to hear more about what your PhD is actually mm-hmm. about. Yeah, so I can. Basically, the reason why we started doing my PhD was because of what we found from our honors work. So I can give like a brief of what my honors was first and then. Yeah, for sure. My PhD. Yeah. yeah. So we know that sea turtles sex is determined by the temperature of the sand. For most populations around the world, what we understand is that at a pivotal temperature, which is normally 29 degrees, can be lower, it can be higher. Um, is like a theoretical temperature where you should get 50% female and 50% Mm -hmm. male in the clutch. And with climate change, we're experiencing an accelerating rate of warming sand temperatures, which is making them more female. And for Rain Island, which is in the northern Great Barrier Reef, where it's really dry, it's really hot, is the largest turtle rookery in the world, not just the green turtle rookery, it is the largest turtle rookery. In a single year, they can have over 100,000 green turtles come to this island to nest. Um, the sex ratio for that island is 99% female. So it's quite mm-hmm. scary. <laughs> and for such a remote place, being like over more than 100 kilometers offshore, there's no real ability for them to you know, transport fresh water to the island and irrigate the sand. So... Um, For my honours, David, my supervisor, he was really interested in the idea that we could potentially be using seawater irrigation to uh, water the sand and basically like imitate rainfall because obviously it's freely available. It's surrounding the island. (laughs) Um, But unfortunately, a lot of research has shown that sea turtles can be quite susceptible to seawater because and sea turtle egg is almost like 100% fresh water. It would be like 95% fresh water. And if you know anything about osmosis, basically the fresh water will want to move out of sight of the egg if the outside environment is too salty. So um, it would basically dehydrate all of the eggs. And hmm. uh, a research paper came out last year that basically showed that that seawater inundation is most um, problematic in the first um, trimester and the last trimester of when the eggs are incubating. So that means that basically that middle section, which also happens to be when the sex is determined, is less ha- um, susceptible to um, seawater inundation. So the eggs will actually survive. So with all this in mind, we still wanted to do the seawater irrigation. We only did about eight litres of seawater per day. And we went all the way up to Millman Island in Torres Strait. That whole area is very culturally significant to Torres Strait Islanders and Aboriginal people in far north Queensland. And so the island that I went to had about 15 green turtles nesting there when I was there. And we had irrigation um, experiments set up, <laughs> unfortunately, for my oldest project. It was also the year that the one, one in 100 year flood occurred in Townsville (laughs) and it just happened to coincide with the exact time that I was doing my irrigation treatments. So I had wonderful volunteers that were there on the island with me and also stayed there while I went home for two weeks for a break because I lived on that island for almost three months 
Mm. This island has no reception, no electricity, uh, no running water, no toilets. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's very far north. And also there's Irukandji, obviously, in the water because it's far north Queensland. So you have to wear Mm. stinger suits if you want to have a bath in the water or shower in the water. (laughs) So, Gabe... Honestly, how long do you reckon you'd last without electricity, reception, running water, toilets, <laughs> and having to shower in stinger-infested water? <laughs> so I've been in lockdown for about two months now, um, which has taught me a lot about, I think, psychologically, I could handle three months of island isolation. Physically, a few days. I just... <laughs> <laughs> All of those things at once, you know, take a few off. All right. We're, 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 we're not enjoying life, but we're getting through life. All of those things, days, days. And then, and then I'm just making a swim for it. <laughs> just risking it for the lane land. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to lie. The longest I've lasted was camping by a river and it was all of two days. So, you know, <laughs> probably wouldn't make it far. <laughs> But you're a kanji. We should. Uh, we we did butt in for a reason. They uh, there's a few species of them, but um, they're little jellyfish, about two centimeters in diameter, um, or fingernail size, I think is how they're usually called, which makes them all the all the more difficult to find uh, when you're bathing in your stinger suit. But the symptoms list for these things, if you get stung, is enormous. It includes all of the things you don't want symptoms of, like nausea, shooting pains in the muscles, severe backache, headaches, anxiety, restlessness, vomiting breathing difficulties. Uh, yeah, very, very severe thing to be stung by. One of the most venomous things in the world. Yep. And if that wasn't enough, on top of that, Melissa and her volunteers had to deal with a monsoon. Um, so yeah, it's a bit, a bit insane. And basically whilst my volunteers were there, like irrigating the nests, it was basically monsoonal rainfall at the same time. So it looks a bit, oh, wow. a bit ridiculous. Yeah. Somebody wa- with a watering can watering the sand whilst it's just torrentially <laughs> pouring rain. <laughs> well, we did it, did it for science anyway. Um, <laughs> for science. Yeah. Um, so yeah, unfortunately most of the effects of the treatments were basically like washed out by the, Mm -hmm. um, that monsoon event. But after I presented my honors, I presented it to like a a bunch of experts in our field. And one of them who's now one of my PhD supervisors, he approached me and said, your research data is actually really interesting because it shows really strong relationships between a monsoon event, like an extreme weather event, and how significantly that reduced the sand temperatures. And so I went on to publish afterwards a completely different story to what my honours work was. And I looked at like the effect of that monsoon event and basically it reduced sand temperatures by up to as much as four degrees Mm. for 20 days. (laughs) So that basically, that paper has like, made the trajectory for the rest of my PhD. So we're looking at the effects of climate change and more specifically rainfall and temperature on sex ratios of nesting sites for green turtle and hawksbills within Asia Pacific. So I have nesting sites um, in Fiji, Tonga, Vanuatu, New Caledonia, Papua New Guinea, Borneo, Malaysia, and Terangu in Malaysia. So heaps of sites yeah. <laughs> and, and it was a pretty big man effort. Like I needed a lot of collaborators, obviously, um, 
it's just been really fulfilling talking to the people who are, are doing the research. They're programming the data loggers and setting up the weather stations. And yeah, it's been really fun. I love, so just to like recap, is it, is so basically you went from like in your honors, having the idea of, can we intervene in a way that will prevent the, what we expect the impacts of climate change will be by watering the nests. And you sort of pivoted mm-hmm. by accident into what, what, what patterns will climate change make in temperature and rainfall? Yeah. So can you sort of take us then sort of bridge the gap between, you know, look for, realizing that the natural rainfall is an important piece of the puzzle um, to how that led into your PhD and, and then what you've been doing mm-hmm. um, uh, up till now? Yeah, that's exactly right. Because like sea turtles are 120 million years old plus. So their lineage has existed for a very long time. Yeah. And there must have been some sort of like mechanism to enable them to survive that long and through so many climate change events in the past. Mm. Obviously, we know that the current climate change event is quite rapid. It's Mm. like, you know, unprecedented. And that's because of carbon gas emissions. But what we want to know is if rainfall worked well in the past to safeguard sea turtle populations by, Mm -hmm. you know, substantially reducing sand temperatures during the peak parts of the nesting periods so that an influx of males was at least produced at some point during the season, Mm -hmm. even if the vast majority of the nests produce females, as long as there's a handful that were made male because of a rainfall event, then that's enabling that population to proliferate into the future and so that those males will be present in the future because obviously (laughs) we need males in the future. That's the whole point. Um, The as far as we know, female turtles aren't able to breed without not breeding with a male. So like they aren't mm-hmm. able to fertilize eggs, obviously with nothing. But yeah. And then the other part of my PhD, the actual field work park that I get to do here in Australia is flying <laughs> drones at Heron Island. So that's pretty exciting. I just got back from field work uh, like almost a month ago. I've done the resident turtle survey and then we'll be going back in October to count how many boys and girls are getting it on, basically. <laughs> the fun stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I always see these funny, like, um, Twitter challenges, and then some of them say, like, try to explain, do a bad explanation of your thesis in one sentence. <laughs> my, my bad explanation is... I like to watch sea turtles have sex with my drone. <laughs> like this, <laughs> this file. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. Uh. Just being a turtle creep. <laughs> Amazing. So your job description could just be turtle creeper. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. I guess it'd be good to talk about uh, what the biggest threats for sea turtles actually are. Uh, so plastic's obviously a big one, but um, I guess what are, what are their biggest threats? Yep. Yeah. So if they're eating jellyfish, jellyfish are like nine, probably 99% seawater. They're pretty close to seawater. Um, and when they're eating, obviously they can't just like only eat the jellyfish. When they open their mouth, they also swallow seawater. And then <laughs> uh, to prevent them from having their blood like too salty or their body too salty, they basically have to like eject all of the seawater out of their food. So all the food is like in their throat. They clench their throat or their esophagus shut. And then basically in that process, they push all the seawater back out through their mouth. And in that process, 
the jellyfish stays in their throat because backwards facing spines stop them from being regurgitated back out again. All sea turtles have that. And even even from the tiny little hatchlings, I've done hatchling dissections and we open their little esophagus and you can see all the tiny little spines, little papillae. <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. So obviously that's a really big problem for when they eat plastics. They can't choose to regurgitate something after they've eaten it. <laughs> so they can't spew it back out. Yeah. It really, it's just, it's a, it's a, that's why turtles are probably one of the animals that are most affected by plastic pollution in the ocean, second to seabirds. Yeah. Yeah. So plastic pollution is definitely up there and it's probably underreported because most turtles, when we see them, like they look healthy, but <laughs> there could be something underlying slowly killing them and it could be plastic just sitting in their gut. I guess too, the other thing is if a sea turtle washes up on the beach, uh, people tend to assume if it's got a, a boat strike on its carapace from the propellers, that that's what killed it. Yeah. The propeller, the boat like running over the top of it is what killed it. But actually if there was plastic in its stomach, generally that means that it'll get compacted and its uh, tissues inside will basically start decomposing and create gases, which makes the turtle float. So it can't dive down to go back to the reef and continue feeding. It also means that the fish that normally pick off all the barnacles and the algae off its back can't reach them because the turtle's not on the reef anymore. It's up at the surface. And so the turtle starts to look sick. It's got like encrusting barnacles all over. It's got algae floating off it. And it's really lethargic because it hasn't eaten anything. And obviously then when a boat, fast boat comes past and it's floating at the surface, one, it can't dive, and two, it's not fast enough to get out of the way. So it gets struck by the boat, washes up on the shore dead, and unless you do an necropsy, yeah, there's no, you know, there's no way you can't say that it was or wasn't the boat that did it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really important to report all of all dead turtle sightings and live turtle sightings as well. So yeah, that's probably like one something that you know we can have a bigger impact on ourselves. Yeah. Plastic pollution. Uh, another impact on turtles is, uh, along with boat strikes, is fishing, commercial fishing, and bycatch. Uh, additionally to that, like there are people that obviously go out and actively catch turtles for a reason, and I wanted to distinguish that because there's a difference between poaching and cultural reasons for um, catching turtles. Yeah. Obviously, we have Torres Strait Islanders and Aboriginal Australians here in Australia that eat turtles for as a part of their culture and their tradition, and that's done like in more sustainable practices than maybe other places in the world where turtles are taken for other reasons than for culture. But yeah, there's just a few a few turtle threats. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say just a few. Mm. When I went to Papua New Guinea, I kind of went there as like a, a guest for their conservation project over there. So yeah. Uh, conflict islands conservation initiative and most of the rangers are ex-poachers so they used to hunt and eat turtles um, but the way that they were doing it was uh, not in a sustainable way they were doing it obviously for money to sell the turtle meat it's illegal to sell in Papua New Guinea so basically these people changed their lives for the better of of sea turtles and they're great role models for their communities and I spent four weeks in Papua New Guinea at different times. And it was really good to see, uh, yeah, how they worked. Uh, it's a bit yeah. different to like Australia. The turtles seem to be, green turtles in Australia seem to be a lot more timid and shy. 
they're made tougher in Papua New Guinea. <laughs> they're not as shy. Um, definitely yeah. one of my my favorite like highlights of my like turtle experiences was when we uh, we take dinghies out from uh, the main island and then travel to the individual islands to do the nesting surveys to count turtles and tag turtles. And then on one of the nights when we were going out, basically like it was like a Disney movie where the dinghy was driving through the water and the water was just glowing with bioluminescent algae. And I felt like I was like Aladdin on the magic carpet. Like it was just so <laughs> cool. It was awesome. And then um, Henry, the one of the head rangers, he had a huge spotlight because as we're coming up to the island, there's big coral bombies that are in front of the reef. Yeah. And so he's got the spotlight out in the water to check for coral bombies as we're getting closer to the island. And when he did that and then turned off the light, the water just illuminated with jellyfish. Like there was all oh. these like big scyphozoan jellyfish that were in the water. And I was like, this is nuts. Like, this is crazy. Like, this is so beautiful. I, I wish I could like, to, I wish I took photos with my eyes. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's just yeah. unbelievable. And then as we got closer to the island, like all of the islands have like coconut palms and everything on them. Yeah. And then this particular one that we went to, as we got closer, I was seeing like all these little like lights like darting around and there were fireflies just coming <laughs> straight out of the rainforest and there's turtles like nesting. And I'm like, what is this place? Like it is beautiful. Like I just, so I felt, cool. yeah, that was just like, yeah, easily the best experience that I've had in my life. And, we relocated successfully like a few nests that night and it's always it always felt a lot better that we got to the nests before the poachers did because sometimes we'd show up to an island and there would be a poacher hut already set up and maybe they showed up and there was no turtles that night but they were there but they left the hut there so that when they can come back they've got somewhere to stay yeah so yeah it's um you know it's a bit hit and miss but most of the time we were like really effective at getting the eggs safely back to the main island where they can be left to incubate in a hatchery and the rangers take care of them before COVID became a thing. The uh, ranger station there was like very reliant on getting tourists and stuff to visit. And yeah. I guess that's probably some good advice for if you ever go traveling overseas, once we're allowed to go traveling overseas, <laughs> um, generally like most places are okay. They, there is legitimate like conservation work being done. Yeah. Bad signs of like not conservation work would be dark pools of water, malnourished looking turtles asking for $5 for you to take a photo of a turtle. Yeah. I even heard that there's some places in Papua New Guinea where you paid a hundred dollars to release a turtle and then somebody would be waiting at the end of the reef crest at, catch the turtle and then they bring it back and then they pay the next ask for money for the next tourist so you have to be really careful about like where you put your money and obviously these are people's livelihoods so i understand they're very like desperate for money but there are better ways to do it than impacting turtles so so much yeah uh so i was just gonna ask what's what's probably the worst day that you reckon you've had working with turtles um Probably my honours <laughs> when I was at uh, Millman, mm. um, so in Torres Strait, we came back from when it was really rainy and monsoony and the wind was still really bad. Mm. Um, 
And one of the days we had a king tide, biggest tide of the year. And on that day, the waves washed over my entire experiment. So all 51 clutches in my experiment were completely inundated with seawater. And basically to put like a visual image in your mind, imagine the ocean basically trying to erode away the beach and me with my, a log trying to suspend sand to stop it from going back into the ocean. (laughs) And every time the wave would crash over my head, I'd go back to the ocean and be like, <laughs> I was so angry. I was so angry. I was just over it, over it. And yes, there was about three hours of that where I was trying to stop my eggs from being eroded away. Yeah. And then once the waves subsided, uh, we looked at the tides for the next day and it was basically the same tides, but more windy. So I was like, okay, well, if we don't move the eggs within the next 24 hours, like all of these eggs are gone. So yeah. it, we made a, a very um, a unified decision to rescue all of the clutches and relocate them to higher ground. Uh, at that point, they were about three and a half to five weeks old. And so during that relocation process, we have to be very cautious with the way that we're doing it, even though they're past the point where they could die. So that first three-week period is super critical that the eggs are not rotated because the embryo inside it is so fine and small that a rotation breaks all of the tissue and um, ligaments that are built up on the inside of the egg. And so because we were past that point, we were still safe enough to relocate them. And basically (laughs) for 24 hours, we relocated 51 clutches. (laughs) Imagine like digging through thick granular coral sand with like your bare fingers to a meter deep 51 times and then relocating the eggs, which was like over a hundred eggs per nest. So it was a mammoth effort. Mm. Um, Incredibly out of all of the clutches, I only had 15% die from that tidal inundation event. So uh, yeah, it was pretty remarkable to put it in perspective. Like, most clutches, if they experienced that tidal inundation and they were left in that salty sand, it would kill easily 80 to 100% of the embryos. So, mm. yeah, I, I felt um, obviously very traumatized from that whole ex- entire experience. Yeah. Um, I'm so grateful for everybody who was there on the island with me because they were, we worked all the way, all day and all through the night to relocate these nests. Mm. And um, it paid off in the end because we had, you know, successful hatchlings come out of it. So you recovered it the worst day and you may, may have recovered, recovered. And I still wrote, and I still got a paper out of that. <laughs> That's pretty good. It's incredible. Like it just shows that no matter how tough research is, like if you're able to stick with it and, you know, make do with what you've got, like research is always going to be hard no matter mm how easy and how much planning you do and everything, something will always go wrong. Mm. Um, and so that's why when I went to uh, Heron Island the other month, like I was expecting, you know, torrential rain, wind. <laughs> it was like a glass out every afternoon. And I was like, something wrong with my I, like, I feel like you deserved to win though. 
Yeah, I think I did deserve the win. Yeah, you know, I definitely one. did. Yeah, yeah. Me and my research assistant, we were just completely mind boggled because yeah, like there's always bad weather or something goes wrong. Can we can we use this as a like? I know we've talked life cycle already a bit before, but can we sort of go through the stages of the turtle life, the sea turtle life? Because it's like mm-hmm. one it's so of the cool. coolest, one of the coolest <laughs> things in the animal kingdom. Um, and I might. Um, try and work in some of the audience questions in here at the same time as well, because a lot of them are about the sea turtle life cycle. Um, but can uh, we okay. start with yeah. that, like that first stage of of the the uh, egg laying? The female turtle pulls up to the shore, grinds mm-hmm. up against the sand or the rocks, and then what what's going on from that point to laying the eggs? Mm-hmm. So even before she's called up onto the beach, she knows where she's going to nest. So mm-hmm. in the afternoons, you'll see turtles basically swimming around and popping their head up. And they're basically looking on the beach for where they want to nest later that night. And they're basically trying to find the darker areas of the beach. So they want to pick, it's almost like an innate behavior to choose somewhere that's darker. And it probably has mm-hmm. something to do with the fact that trees mean shade means cooler means survival so that's probably what the evolutionary (laughs) equation equals (laughs) so yeah the female should come up onto the beach as she's coming out of the water she's checking every couple of seconds when she takes a breath for predators so they Mm -hmm. crawl a few meters take a breath look around keep crawling if they're the first time they've ever been out of the water since they were hatchling they are very very cautious they're very slow they basically will be startled very easily so that's probably if you ever see a turtle on on the beach that's when you need to be the most cautious of sea turtles is when they first come out of the water because they're really close to the water so it's easy for them to turn around and go back in Mm -hmm. Mm. um so they come up to the dunes and what i notice the most is as soon as they start to feel the grass on their face is when they start the body pitting process Mm -hmm. so in areas where the dunes were more bare sand they basically kept going over the dune until they got to a place that was grassy and then they started digging. So Uh it's really interesting. I think maybe something to do with the fact that if grass is there, they know that there might not be another clutch there. Mm -hmm. It's another way that they can get disturbed is as they're digging, if they encounter another clutch of eggs under the sand, often, not always, uh, but often that can disturb them. They'll go, what's that? And then they stop and then they go either go dig somewhere else or they go back into the water it's really interesting. So yeah, maybe if there's grass there, as that indicates that there's no nest there. Um, huh. And then basically the first process is that body pitting part. So they're basically almost doing like a swimming action on the sand to move the soft surface sand out of the way with the all four of their flippers. And they do that for anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes depending on what turtle they are. If you're a Hawksbill turtle, it's like five seconds. (laughs) They don't really put a lot of effort into it. The green turtles love body pitting. They often will dig three to four body pits before they actually pick a spot where they want to nest, which is really weird. Um, And then once they've dug that body pit, then they start egg chambering, which is only using their back flippers and they use it like a scoop. So they scoop their foot in, pull it out, pull the sand to the side, scoop the next foot in, and as they put this one to the side, they scoop that sand away and then uh-huh. they put that foot back in. So it's really interesting, that process. They do it all completely like not looking at what they're doing. A first time nesting female knows exactly the process of what to do, huh. which I find that incredible. Yeah. Um, just shows how innate their behavior is. 
Yeah. And then once they dig down to where they can no longer reach any further, so if you're a green turtle, that can be up to a metre. Um, if she's really large, she can put her foot okay. down to a metre. And then they start laying. And this is the part that there seems to be a bit of miscommunication amongst people understanding about what actually is going on in a turtle's brain when she's laying. <laughs> For some reason, there's this misconsensus that she's in a trance or something, that she's zoned out and she's just like doesn't care about anything else. That's not at all the case. She's actually still super hyper alert. You have to be. You're, you know, exposing your genitalia and laying eggs. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so in that laying process, normally what we do is, as um, research staff and conservationists, we wait for her to lay about 20 eggs before we start mm -hmm. um, coming up and measuring her and things like that. But what she decides at that point is that if this animal that's been hovering around me watching me dig this nest hasn't actually hurt me yet, then I think I'm okay. Like I'm not going to get hurt. So she just continues laying and she's already so invested mm -hmm. into the process of laying. It's actually more beneficial for her to finish laying the eggs than it would be to stop laying and then try again later on. Like at this point I've crawled up on the beach, I've dug this hole and, and if you're going to eat me, then so be it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. If, if you were to try and tag the turtle, whilst she was laying, she would stop because then at that point you've broken that, mm -hmm. that trust boundary <laughs> and uh, you've injured her. So she's scared now you've startled her. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is if she's laid fewer than 50% of that clutch, she'll actually return back to that beach either the same night or the night after to lay the rest of the clutch. Hmm. Um, if she's laid more than 50% of that clutch, she'll just dump the eggs out in the ocean because it's not worth her coming back just to lay 20 eggs or something. And then after they've finished laying the eggs, at this point you've already, if it's a green turtle, this is like you started at 7 p.m. and it's already midnight. <laughs> and then after they finish laying, they start backfilling the nest with sand, so pushing sand back down the hole. Hey, so just cutting in. In typical life on the brink fashion, with some more fantastic animal sounds. Melissa was super kind in sending us a couple of videos of green sea turtles nesting. The first clip is the sound of a green turtle backfilling its nest chamber. And the second clip is the sound of a green turtle filling in the body pit. But we'll let Melissa explain what's going on. This is my favorite part of the nesting process because basically when she pushes all that soft sand in, she basically does this like cool little like patty cake like motion <laughs> with her feet. She's so gentle. Like it's like, she's like tucking them into bed. Like she's just like, <laughs> And then she kind of does like a little booty pop as well at the same time because she's like using, using her shell to pat down the sand as That's well. That's amazing. Yeah, what she's done in that process is most of the egg chamber, which is the, the channel from the nest all the way up, is like soft sand. And then that top 20 centimetres is compacted hard sand. So if another turtle or obviously not a person but in evolution, but if a person was to step on that spot where the nest was, they'd have to step really hard in order to break that hard surface sand that's been compacted. So it basically protects the nest from being collapsed inwards. So pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and then the next part is kind of like a, a term that some people use, some people don't use. Uh, it's like disguising the nest. We don't really know if there she's actually disguising the nest, but backfilling is, is also another name where basically like mm -hmm. – 
they're channeling away from that body pit that they've made and in that motion they're pushing it looks similar to body pitting where basically they're pushing all the sand in front of them behind them and that they're moving forward at the same time and then the place where they leave the body pit is different to where the actual body pit is so they've basically backfilled the real body pit and left a fake body pit behind and then they call back to the ocean that's so, so cool. that's why people call it like disguising because yeah if like a, a fox or a predator or something comes along they're probably going to try and look in the first spot which is that body pit um but it's all just hard compacted sand because no one's dug there cool and then the eggs incubate for anywhere from 45 to 70 days it really depends on the temperature you just, just like cooking a cake you turn the temperature down really low they the cake cooks really slowly and mm. in turtles the hatchlings actually get bigger so the longer that they're incubated for the hatchling carapace the size of them will actually be bigger and the reason for that is because they've had more time to convert the yolk into actual tissue whereas if they are in a hot nest um, and it's only about a 45-day incubation period, uh, they're quite small. And both types of turtles, the small turtles and the big turtles, um, hatchlings, as they're about to pip out of the egg, they push the yolk inside their body. So it's like internalized and they have like a little belly button. And basically that's mum's packed lunch for the first week <laughs> of life, really. Yeah. Um, and there's like a trade-off between being slightly bigger because, you know, there's fewer animals that could potentially eat you. Like maybe only the seagulls can eat you, but the terns can't because the terns are smaller. Yeah. Um, but you've got less packed lunch, so you're not going to be able to survive without finding food for very long in the open ocean. So you're going to have to actively search for food faster. Whereas the smaller turtles, more things are going to be able to eat them, but they've got yeah. like more energy storage um, to be able to survive in the ocean for longer. Nobody really knows which option is better because they both have pluses and minuses. But after that incubation phase, the hatchlings crawl out of the sand. At that point, they um, imprint to that geographic location mm -hmm. and that process is still kind of being underpinned. We don't know exactly when and how it occurs although um, they found manganite particles in the cerebral mm -hmm. fluid of hatchling's brain. The idea is that when they come to the surface, the manganite would point into a specific direction, north, south, and they basically have this like biological compass in their brain for their entire life. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, um, that's awesome. <laughs> I mean, I, my partner is terrible at directions, so I'd love to pump some manganite into his brain <laughs> so he can know where we're going. Um, anyway... What's the uh, the nesting success like? How many make it from the nest to, to the water? Um, that really depends. Oh, from predators? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they uh, – what did I read the number? It's really dependent on the nesting beach and what type of predators are there. So I've been to places where in Papua New Guinea where there's no seabirds at all eating the hatchlings, none. And then in places like Malaysia, they've got like monkeys and other random things <laughs> that I wouldn't have thought of unless I read <laughs> yeah, about it. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, it basically ranges anywhere from like, I think the highest amount was like 80% of surviving to the ocean, but then the lowest it would be like something like 10%. It really yeah. depends on where you are. Um, it's, it's pretty sad when you sort of pull up and there's a sort of like the turtles that haven't made it to the top. Um, yeah. 
and also watching them when they break out of the nest. How do you sort of like? Because obviously you don't want to interfere. Is it is it really difficult to stop yourself basically shooing away all the birds and trying to get all like the fish out of the way so the turtles can make it to the edge? Yeah. Look, to be honest, even if you shoo away the birds when they're on the sand. The birds will get them in the water. And or if the birds don't get them, the sharks will get them. And if the sharks don't get them, the trevally are going to get them. So mm-hmm. we call the reef the wall of mouths because basically the turtles have to swim across this wall of mouths with, which are trying to eat them. Anything that has a wide enough circumference to fit the turtle into it will eat it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can't really say too much, too much about that because, yeah, if, you, if you're going to chew them away, that's the main reason why hatchlings will try to emerge after dusk because mm. um, although they still have to deal with the sharks, which have obviously um, the ampullae lorenzini, they can feel like electrical currents so they can feel little turtle heartbeats in the water and they can sense better where the turtle hatchlings are. At yeah. least they don't have to deal with the birds because birds just pick them off like popcorn. They don't, <laughs> they don't really um, care too much. And then in terms of the doing nest excavations, um, that's probably one of the most important things to do in terms of a like conservation project because you want to know like how effective is the natural beach environment at producing successful clutches. Mm-hmm. And a successful clutch would be you know, upwards mm-hmm. of 75% hatching success. And then at what point do you have to start intervening to relocate them into a shaded hatchery to protect them from the sun, tidal inundation, or from predators, mm. poachers? One of the worst excavations I've ever done was a two-week-old green turtle nest, and it got forgotten. So someone was supposed to dig it up, and then I got the best job of like going off and finding it and digging it up. And essentially I just like was digging down to where the nest eggs were. And as I've like put my hand through, I just basically skewered a hatchling like with my oh. finger, like the hat. And I pulled my hand out and the hatchling was like halfway through. It was dead obviously, yeah. but it was melted. Like, and it was oh. just like through my finger. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, yeah it was pretty fasty. Um, and so yeah, once the hatchlings are finished, uh, crawling out of the sand, they crawl down to the beach, then swim out to the ocean, then we call, or they go through what's called the lost years. So basically they swim out into the ocean lost in the currents. Um, if you're a green turtle, you kind of swim around in circles in the Pacific Ocean until you're about five to ten years old. And then you find a nice reef to live on and eat the jellyfish and the algae that's encrusting on the corals. And, you know, it's a great life on the reef. Um, but, yeah. Did you have any questions for the, for the audience? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had one on, um, so I think Mike asked with the females laying, mm-hmm. how many times is that occurring throughout their lifetime and year to year as they go back to that, to that spot to lay? Mm-hmm. So for, if you're a green turtle at 30 years of age is when you become sexually mature or around that age. Mm-hmm. And um, it takes 18 months to prepare for a nesting season. So they're basically fattening themselves up. And then they're using their biological compass, they swim back towards the place where they were born. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll go to the exact same nesting beach. They could go within a hundred kilometer radius of that beach, but they're swimming in that direction. Um, and then along the way is when they breed with the males. So males tend to hang out in little kind of like, uh, how do I say it? Like outcrops from the coastline. Mm-hmm. So here on the East coast of Australia, um, off Mid-Jerriba, which is Stradbroke Island, at Point Lookout. There, that is a known courtship area for both loggerheads and green turtles. 
because it's basically forcing any females that are coming from south, they have to go past that point. They have to go past <laughs> the boys. And so they've planned their path like very strategically so they know that the girls are going to have to come past. And then the female arrives at the nesting beach and she nests anywhere from three to six times tends to be the average mm. although we had a green turtle at monopo which nested 10 times in a season oh, wow. and each time she lays a hundred over a hundred eggs so more than a thousand eggs for this season yeah pretty, crazy. pretty incredible crazy yeah <laughs> and then uh for each individual turtle and species and population the time between nesting seasons is vastly different so mm -hmm. in some areas around the world it's only two to three years for a female until she returns back to breed whereas in other places around the world their nesting periodicity could be up to seven years in between when they come back um, and that's probably because they live really far away from the nesting beach and aren't in the best habitat um, um, I also, I have, sorry, Alex, I just wanted to follow up with one more, <laughs> but, um, like I, I wanted to know, um, you mentioned how it's 30 years between mm -hmm. them leaving and them coming back. H how do we, how do we figure that out? <laughs> oh, through some hardcore dedicated scientists. Um, so Cole Limpus uh -huh. is the, um, chief scientist for the department of environment and science in Queensland. He's getting into his 80s now, so he's been around for a long time. He's a turtle himself. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he did this research project back in the 70s and 80s where basically they tagged a bunch of hatchlings. Now, tags normally, I've actually got some tags. Okay, so it's us again. At this point, Melissa reached behind her and pulled up what I'm assuming is a scientifically accurate plushie of a green sea turtle that was sitting behind her and then pulled up tags, real tags they use on turtles from the desk in front of her and demonstrated the notching process that they actually did for this research to figure out how long it takes for a sea turtle to come back to its nesting beach. And if you want to see this adorable demonstration, we've uploaded the video to our Instagram the day before we posted this episode and that's at Life on the Brink podcast. Let's get back into it. Um, so like this is a, a flipper tag for an adult oh, female. Cool. So kind of big. It's about what three or four centimeters long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then this is one that you would put in a post hatchling after they're a couple of months old. We can put that tag into them. But yeah. a hatchling is not going to fit either of these tags because a hatchling is mm. almost as big as this. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so what they did instead was they found that if they took kind of like what looks like a hole punch, I think it's actually a leather puncher but basically it cuts a very small hole and they would do it only on the very marginal scales of a shell, which are the ones that go along the edge of the carapace. They'd only okay. cut into just a little bit, kind of like a semicircle. And basically they called that notching and the notches indicated what beach they were, that hatchling was from, what year it was. And when that turtle would then come back, uh, Cole would find them as juveniles or subadults and record how many years it's been because they had the notches that would code for you know, what beach they came from and what year they were born. <laughs> At that point in the 70s and um, late 60s, they thought that turtles were only like 10 years old when they came up to breed. Mm -hmm. And so 10 years had passed and he was finding turtles in Kwanamuka Morton Bay and realised that 
it's going to be a long time before a turtle is going to get to like a meter long. <laughs> and that's the size of the turtles that come up onto the beach to nest. And so like, it's a lot longer of a project than what he initially thought. But yeah, that's basically how they managed to figure out when wild green turtles um, reach sexual maturity was based off studies like that, where they were actually able to notch individual turtles from hatchling all the way until they were adults. Um, but it's a mammoth effort project. Like you have to be <laughs> significantly invested into sea turtles in order to, um, to do that. So, but obviously he didn't mm -hmm. know that when he signed up for it, he was only, he thought he was gonna, <laughs> it was going to be a 10 year project. So, yeah. My mom had a question to do with this and it was just, uh, she wanted to know, do you know what the oldest sea turtle like recorded is? Oldest um, living? so I don't know. It was, it's probably going to be one that's either in an aquarium or yeah. like one of these ones that Cole's been studying where basically they know, have the known age of it. But yeah, basically mm -hmm. we have no idea <laughs> how long <laughs> they live for naturally and die of a natural cause, um, yeah. such as like a parasite or something when they get really old or whatever. Most of the time, unfortunately, turtles have premature deaths from things like threats like boat strikes. Boat strikes are really common here in Australia and it's becoming more common. So if you have a friend or um, anybody who listening knows somebody who goes way too fast on their boat, then it's time to tell them to slow down. It's not fair on the turtles. They don't and have time to impressed. move on the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So the answer is we don't know for certain. It's definitely not 150 years old. <laughs> oh, what they sell on Nemo. Or at least if it, if it is, then that's a really old turtle and that's really cool. But we don't know for certain. Do you know what the oldest one Cole has found? Um, so I think his earliest one that came back was like 28 years old and that was in the early 2000s. So that probably puts her at like maybe 50 years old, but they definitely get <laughs> older so cool. than that. Yeah. They definitely get older than that because he has turtles that were first tagged when they were nesting females, um, when they right. came back in, uh, in like the nineties or whatever, and they're still nesting to date. Mm -hmm. Um, so that means that they've had 30 plus years of breeding life and then probably, like 20 to 30 years before that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Cool. Um, I'm mindful of how we've eaten up there and <laughs> That's fine. Already. I, I love yeah. talking about turtles. This is the whole <laughs> okay, reason. Cool. I, um, I think my personal, um, <laughs> what do you call it? My personal ID is Miss Totally Obsessed, literally. I had just, yes. my entire room, I had to go into a room that wasn't so cluttered with turtle things that you <laughs> have like a clear image. Um, yeah. Love it. Um, so I think what we might do is I've got, uh, like one more audience question that we'll ask and then we'll get into some wrapping up stuff. Mm -hmm. But that last question is from Peter who wants to know how smart sea turtles actually are. Um, so I don't look at turtle behavior specifically, but I have friends, uh, colleagues who do. And mm -hmm. basically <laughs> turtles have like a walnut sized brain. So it's, or sometimes even <laughs> okay. smaller than that. So they're really, they're, they're not the smartest uh, reptiles <laughs> out there. Um, <laughs> and they also, uh, most of their behaviors are innate. So they're like dinosaur brains that they've been programmed to do very specific things. Um, mm -hmm. But they are still intelligent enough to know that, you know, when they see a shark, how to avoid a shark. So if you ever watch drone footage of um, them trying to escape a shark, basically they always swim with their carapace parallel to the shark's mouth so that the widest mm. point of their body is like going to like the shark's going to have to fit its mouth around it 
um, makes it really <laughs> difficult for the chuck to grab a hold of it and catch it. I find it pretty, I find them pretty incredible to be able to, I have never, never ever been out of the water since they were a tiny little hatchling to know exactly what to do when they crawl up onto the beach yeah. and dig the nest and do that entire process almost perfectly every single time. Um, sometimes the first time nesting females, because they are more skittish and, and um, cautious, they don't always make it to the dunes. So sometimes they nest mid beach close to the water, which is always the ones that we end up relocating. But Mm-hmm. You know, that's more about a, a confidence thing. It's not really about an intelligence thing. She still yeah. <laughs> she does still does the, the process exactly perfectly, but but yeah. Um, I love that they have to get their confidence up with trying <laughs> yeah. to start. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so good. I guess on that note, do do you have for people who want to help um, or get involved physically, um, do you have groups? Uh, organizations, research projects that you would recommend to people who are looking to try and do their do their part of, of helping? So if you're more likely to get your hands dirty and actually want to actively participate in conservation, then I definitely recommend um, signing up for Queensland Turtle Research if you're in Queensland mm-hmm. uh, or on the east coast of Australia yeah. or in WA if you could travel. But then for actual conservation work that if you know if you want to donate to, one of my favorite groups is the Australian Seabird Rescue in Ballina. Mm-hmm. So that's where the original rehabilitation hospital thing was set up. And now they have a bunch of other branches along the East Coast, but they work a lot with sea turtles and seabirds. And yeah, they do an incredible job there. It's so really good to support those smaller rehab um, conservation projects. So yeah, mm. definitely. And I guess fi- final sort of question. Um, if you if you had one message or just in a, in a sentence or two about turtle conservation or conservation just in general for people to hear, what, what would it be? Probably that if you've never swum with a sea turtle, you need to do it. <laughs> and second to that, <laughs> once you've swum with a turtle, that would should make you want to have them in the future for your own children and children's to be able to swim with. Because even just being next to a turtle, when you look into their eyes, I know I said before, like they've got a walnut sized brain, but they have the heart of like, I don't know, they just have this beautiful deep soul. And when you look into their eyes, it just seems to go for ages. And um, they're such ancient, awesome animals. And that's the, that's the, one of the things that I love the most about them. So yeah, I think you, we want them to be there for everybody in the future. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks, yeah. Hayes, for coming on. We really appreciate it. That's okay. It was really fun. I love talking about turtles. <laughs> Episode four of Life on the Brink was recorded on the lands of the Turrbal, Yagara, and Garingay people. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. A massive thanks again to Melissa for talking turtles and nerding out with us for a good hour and a half. And thank you so much for the plushy demonstration and the nesting videos. If you want to check them out, they'll be on our Insta at Life on the Brink podcast. And if you want to learn more about sea turtles or Melissa's awesome work, check her out on her Instagram at Melissa.Stains. We'll also be posting some adorable turtley goodness on our socials later in this week. Thanks to Melissa's awesome photos and videos she sent through to us. If you haven't already, remember to follow, rate, review Life on the Brink on whichever podcast app you're currently listening on. 
If this is the first episode you've heard, our first three releases on Glossy Black Cockatoos, Tree Climbing Lines, and Kiwis are also available wherever you're hearing this or via lifeonthebrinkpodcast.com. A huge thanks to Kyle Morley for our theme music and Jake Barnes for my microphone. Thanks to Angus Bazina for getting that website up and running. And thanks to the lovely Sue Bazina for submitting so many turtle questions. I'm sorry I only got the one, Mum. <laughs> and most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next week. And if you're interested, there's been an update on Daniela's work uh, from episode one and we've put it up on our Instagram. So take a look.